Sometimes we make decisions that take us down a path we don't anticipate. That's what happened to me back in 2021. Hi, I'm Sandra Bartlett. I'm the managing producer of podcasts at Canada's National Observer. That spring of 2021, I came across a story about a biologist in a remote corner of British Columbia fighting for wild salmon. The article was an excerpt from her about-to-be-published book, Not On My Watch. I bought the book, and when I turned the book's final page, I knew this story needed to be a podcast. But it took months to gather the documents, track people down, and travel to BC to talk to people. And as we know, time is money. We need your support to create more podcasts like The Salmon People. The easiest way to support us is to purchase a one-year subscription. Another powerful way to support our podcasts is to make a direct donation. Go to nationalobserver.com forward slash donate to make your contribution. Welcome to Hot Politics. My name is David Mackay. I'm the Deputy Managing Editor of Canada's National Observer and the host of this podcast about the intersection of the climate emergency and politics. Season one is over, and I'll be back in the fall. In the meantime, in case you missed it or just want to hear it again, this is David Suzuki Calls Out Bullshit. This is episode eight. David Suzuki calls out bullshit. There aren't many Canadians who don't know the name David Suzuki, the geneticist who brought his environmental activism, intellect, and energy to broadcasting. He has been hosting the CBC Science program, The Nature of Things, for more than 40 years. If you skipped science classes in high school or university, you could pick up a lot of knowledge from watching and listening to David Suzuki. He demystifies science, helps people understand how science and the environment are important in our lives, and he was one of the first to raise warnings about climate change. He's been fighting to stop the damage for decades. This is his final season on The Nature of Things. He's retiring at the age of 87. But he has just completed a new documentary on climate change that, you might say, takes the debate to a whole new level. David Suzuki, welcome to Hot Politics. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. You have a, a new documentary on the climate crisis. It's called Apocalypse Plan B. I want to start with your opening words. The world is starting to panic about global warming, and there are radical ideas in the air about how to turn down the heat. One of these radical ideas to fight climate change is to dim the sun, what's called solar geoengineering. Can you explain that? Well, it's based on the, the observation that when volcanoes go off, and we remember Mount Pinatubo a few years ago, sent a lot of stuff into the sky. And one of the components in volcanic eruptions is uh, sulfur. And the sulfur in the atmosphere apparently acts to reflect sunlight. When Pinatubo went on for uh, two years, there was uh, a perceptible uh, cooling of the planet, fraction of a degree, but very, very significant. And um, on that basis, then, people like David Keith are 
putting forward the notion that we could imitate the earth and uh, dim the sun deliberately. So that's the idea behind it. Mind you, you know, what, what's it all going to do when it falls to the earth? A lot of it will fall as sulfuric acid. Well, we'll only put up a tenth of what Mount Pinatubo put up. Yeah, but it's going to be put up 24-7 every day of the year. And then next year, they'll have to put even more up. There's no end to it, except we're going to have to keep putting more and more up there. I mean, it's insanity, but it's an illustration of the problem. Human beings have, in what we used to say as kids, got too big for their britches. We think we're so goddamn smart, we can take over the atmosphere and treat it in a way that will correct the problem we already created from being too smart. Insanity. Insanity. It isn't. It is insanity. Well, yeah, I agree. Uh, we should be shutting down, the, uh, reducing our fossil fuel emissions. But if we don't, then the people that suffer most are going to be people in the poor countries. We got to do something for the poor people. Bullshit. Right now, all kinds of people are suffering. The Inuit, the people in the South Pacific Islands, people in low-lying areas in Pakistan, they're already suffering because of our inability to rein in our fossil fuel emissions. And then to use them as the excuse to continue this line of work that allows the fossil fuel companies to continue. That is, it is absolutely disgusting. There are other bold, some would say odd ideas in the documentary of bringing clouds closer to the earth because low clouds can help reduce the planet's temperature. And this is all very futuristic, I guess. And it, it seems that there's a belief that you can use these technologies to change the atmosphere to reduce climate heating. Is that a workable approach? Absolutely not. It's what's got us into the mess. We don't even take the most simple steps. We've got a problem. We've been warned about the problem since the 1950s, and the warnings have become increasingly more urgent. And yet we don't even take the, the first steps that are needed, namely, don't make it worse. And how do you do that? Very simple. You stop burning fossil fuels and you stop cutting down your trees. That's at least a way of trying to prevent it getting any worse. But we've already created a problem that is going to ripple through the next decades. Even if we stopped all of the burning of fossil fuels overnight, the warming is going to continue. I mean, we've already started that whole process. But it's crazy not knowing what the outcome of that is to keep adding more stuff to it. Everything we do, we do to avoid looking in the mirror and saying, listen, you're the major predator on this planet. In the dock, you had a really interesting graph and it was a steady rise of CO2, but the steepest rise was since 1990. I mean, that's not that long ago. What's, exactly. what's going on? Exactly. We already knew about global warming. Back in 1899, the uh, Swedish scientist won a Nobel Prize. That's when he, he first called it global warming. And he said, you know, we ought to be thinking of what the effect will be when humans begin to burn fossil fuels more. So the considerations about the implications of greenhouse gases and global warming have been with us for over a century. In 1959, we know that um, the father of the hydrogen bomb, 
talked to the American Petroleum Institute, which is the uh, they cover for all of the major petroleum uh, companies. He said at that time, if we continue on the trajectory of using fossil fuels by the year 2000, we're going to have a real problem. In the years that follow, Exxon scientist John Black said that he's right, that burning fossil fuels is warming the planet. So they have known for over 50 years, instead of spending money on finding alternative fuels, instead of saying, we're an energy company, we got to find the renewable and clean energy, they have spent hundreds of billions of dollars in a campaign of deceit, hiring people from the PR firms that work for tobacco and saying, no, 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 this isn't real. It's not proved. This is a natural cycle. It's got to do with sunspots, all of the crap to deliberately confuse people about the reality of climate change as a threat. And it worked. It paid off. They are the most profitable sector in society to this very day. And to this very day, they are continuing to support people who are denying the reality of this. These people should be thrown in jail. They know what the problem is. They know what the solutions are. And they continue campaign against the action. I, I think that what you're talking about is the fact that our lifestyle is really to blame. And you've been watching this acceleration and warning us for years and years and years. So do you have a list of our worst habits? Well, I mean, they're, they're everywhere because energy underlies everything in modern society. This is why it's such a, a tremendous problem for people to get their heads around. It's not just a matter of heating or cooling our homes or cooking our food. So, for example, one of the things that really bugs me is the fashion industry. The fashion industry is not there to make you look good. It's to peddle more of their goods. And they've got you thinking you look great when you get the latest fashion. I grew up, uh, as you may know, uh, we were uh, imprisoned during the war and then thrown out of British Columbia because we were Japanese Canadians. And uh, we came into Ontario. We were dirt poor. We'd lost everything during the war. And the result of that is even something like clothing was a big expenditure for us. I have always worn blue jeans right up to the present because denim wears like iron. It sickens me when I see people wearing brand new blue jeans already ripped. What the hell is that? That is a statement. I don't give a shit about the planet. When I'm done looking good, this is going straight into garbage. It's our consumption. It's how we transport ourselves. It's the food that we eat. All of it is wrapped up in a dependence now on fossil fuels. But now that we've gone into using agriculture to feed people around the planet, so people like us in Canada can buy fresh fruit and vegetables every month of the year, that means that that stuff's all got to be shipped. And in order to supply the world, we have to look at massive, massive machinery, all driven by fossil fuels and the harvest and all of that stuff you realize now that for every calorie of food that you get out, you're putting in about six calories of fossil fuel. Basically, we're using fossil fuel to feed ourselves. This can't continue indefinitely. Transportation. I was standing there waiting for the bus this morning, 
that's not because I'm being virtuous. I'm I'm at an age where I don't want to drive anymore. I just don't like driving. I don't trust myself. But standing on the corner, hearing, first of all, each car is going, Shoo! so the noise alone. But then I watch these cars, which may have a little guy in it or a little woman. Mm-hmm. So you get, what, 1,500 pounds of car to drive 150 pounds of human being. Most of your energy is going into transporting that person. What the hell? Why do we need all that? I'm a big sinner in that I have spent a lot of my time on behalf of the nature of things flying. And there's a group in England called Jump, which looks at how you can reduce, really reduce your footprint, your carbon footprint by the food you eat, the clothes you wear, and traveling is one of them. And they say, if you're going to fly on a short haul flight, that's say from Vancouver to Victoria or uh, from Toronto to Montreal, one short haul flight every three years. Going on a long haul flight from Vancouver to Toronto or Toronto to London, England, once every seven years. Well, you know, for people like you and me, that's a big shift that's needed. Thank goodness for Zoom. I'm glad you mentioned the nature of things because now you're leaving. You've been hosting the program for 43 of its 60 plus years on the air. That's just amazing. So how are you feeling now at this point? Well, I'm liberated. Being the face of of the nature of things, I told them over 10 years ago, look, I want to leave. Even though the nature of things has been very good about letting me say my piece on many things, the fact is we have been censored. We've had to change things. We've had to pull pieces out because of the pressure of our lawyers and the fear of losing uh, people who uh, advertise on CBC. And salty language? Well, I use salty language. They may bleep it out, but but I want to be able to say it out there. And so I've stayed with the nature of things because to me, this is one of the most important programs that there is on television today. And it's been there not because of me. It's been there long before I came on. It was a venerable, very much admired program. And it was a privilege for me to take part on, uh, on this series And because of that, being given a platform. But still, the platform wasn't wide open. And, you know, one of the things that I've often found when I talk to people, they go, wow, you're that's so different from the way you are on television. You're damn right it's different because on television, that's not me. That's a creation. I am told what to say in many cases. I have to behave within certain limits. But I am also very, very happy that the nature of things will continue on. They found two very, very good replacements, and I'm thrilled that it's by far more important than I am, and it will continue. Is it a little bittersweet for you, though, to to sit here and realize that the things that you were talking about so many years ago, we're still talking about them? I don't have time to indulge in feeling self-righteous and being able to say, see, I told you. That's too much of a luxury and an indulgence. I feel angry. I feel angry because it's in a way turning our backs on the very thing that got us as a species out of being nomadic hunter-gatherers into the people that we are today. For most of human existence, we survived on what we knew. Intelligence was the big key to our survival. We invented an idea called the future. 
And because we have a sense that there is something beyond the present, we realized we can affect the future by what we do now. If we look ahead, we can figure where the dangers are and where the opportunities lie. We call them scientists. We have supercomputers. And for over 60 years, the leading scientists of the world have been saying, look, we're headed in the wrong direction. We can change direction. And there are enormous opportunities at changing paths. And now we're going, oh, we can't afford that. You know, we'll lose jobs. And we'll have uh, all of these excuses to avoid doing the very thing that got us to where we are. Look ahead, see where the problems lie, and then choose a path to avoid them and exploit the opportunities. I want to circle back to the documentary for a sec. Plan B in the title suggests that there is a plan A. So what's plan A? Plan A is very clear. It's to use your senses, listen to scientists, and we've done that. I think the example of that is what we did with COVID. If we say we can't do it with fossil fuels, think what happened when COVID hit. A week before COVID hit, if someone had said, look, we've got to change the way we live. We've got to stay cooped up in our apartments. We can't go to work the way we always did. We have to wear masks. I would have said, you're nuts. You'll never get that done. And we'll get paid even though we're staying at home, trying to isolate ourselves. I would have said impossible. And yet we did it. COVID wasn't anything near the threat that global warming is. Yet we did it for COVID. We're not even willing to try to do it with fossil fuel emissions. It's absolutely baffling. We've got everything at our disposal to act on this. Environmental groups like mine, the David Suzuki Foundation, have been working for years to say, if we take climate change seriously as an emergency, what are the pathways? There are all kinds of answers out there, but we have to seize it as an existential moment. We've got to act. The way we did in World War II, that's why I'm a big supporter of Seth Klein's, who wrote uh, The Good War. Not because war is good, but the way people can rally in the face of an existential threat. And we've got to do that with fossil fuel emissions. So the, you know, plan A is to act in the way that we did during World War II, the way that we did when the COVID crisis hit. At one point in the documentary, there are two scientists who talked about climate denying and the fact that it's now been replaced with climate doomism. Is it too late to make a change? It depends on what you want to result. In 2018, the IPCC, the most credible organization in the world and the most conservative group of climatologists, released a special report and said, look, all our calculations show if we go one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels in temperature rise, if we go above that, chaos is going to happen. So for heaven's sake, do everything you can to keep temperature from rising more than 1.5 degrees this century. The day after that report was released, marijuana became legal in Canada. Guess what in the media? It was all about marijuana. In 2019, in May, the United Nations released a report on biodiversity that was absolutely terrifying. We've been driving species to extinction at an astonishing rate, anywhere from 1,000 to 10,000 times faster than extinction normally occurs. And a million species of plants and animals are imminently at risk of going extinct. Again, a terrifying document. The day after that report was released, Harry and Meghan had a baby. 
Are you telling me that that should push everything out of the media in order to cover this? That's what we're doing. We're daydreaming our way into absolute catastrophe. We say that we love our children. And if we love our children, then for God's sake, show it by doing something to protect the future for them. If we really do love our children, then moms and dads have no choice, it seems to me. We don't know enough to say it's too late. If we can pull back and give nature a chance, nature will surprise us. And my hope is that she will be more generous than we deserve. Well, absolutely. I mean, we've got important voices like yours. We've got the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. We've got a very important discussion right now. You're hanging things up at the nature of things. What's next? Where do you go from here? Well, it, there's nothing morbid about me saying I'm in the death zone. What oh, David hell? Suzuki, don't say that. No, no, no. Don't, don't <laughs> say that. Because when you're 87, for God's sakes, you know damn well, you're living on borrowed time. When I look at the obituaries now and see all these people dying who are younger than me, that makes it even more urgent. As long as this thing is still ticking in a half-assed sort of way, I've got things to tell people. And that's why I'm here talking to you. And I hope uh, other people, because we've got to tell people we can't futz around anymore. We've got a real emergency that if we seize this crisis as the emergency it is, all kinds of possibilities will happen. So you still have, even at the tender age of 87, you've still got stuff that we need to hear, that, that you need to say. Well, I know. <laughs> I mean, I'm only repeating what other people are saying. Let yeah. me say this wonderful program that we're talking about is Mark Starowitz and Caitlin Starowitz's product. They've done this show, and I'm just honored to be a part of it with them. You know, one person I really really admire is Antonio Guterres, mm -hmm. the Secretary General of the United of Nations. The United Nation. He said, any further investment in infrastructure for fossil fuels is moral and economic madness. Two days later, Justin Trudeau approved the deep sea development of Bay du Nord off Newfoundland. And 10 days later, Christian Freeland announced a $10 billion interest-free loan to continue building the TMX pipeline. So Antonio Guterres is saying it, but clearly it's not cutting through. The problem is this. We're all captive of the systems that we've created to govern ourselves. The judicial, the legal, the uh, economic, and the political systems are all based on the notion that humans are at the top of the heap. We live in a pyramid. We're at the top, and everything down below is for us. For 99% of human existence, that's not what we thought. We thought that we lived within a web, a web of relationships with all other species, with air, water, soil, sunlight. That's the way people live. They understood that. And we're one strand in that web. And they know that when that one strand does something, it has consequences throughout the entire web. And so there's reciprocity. We receive from that web of life, but we have a responsibility to act in the right way so that we don't screw it up. But now we don't have a sense of responsibility because we're at the top of the heap. And so we're trying to manage everything down below without understanding nature is the very foundation of the way that we live.
Without nature, we are not here. Without plants, the air wouldn't be breathable. The water wouldn't be drinkable. There wouldn't be any soil. Every bit of our food was once living. We better pay attention to the nature, which is the foundation. Well, David Suzuki, there's still a lot more to say. And I have a feeling that you're going to keep saying it as passionately as you always have. And I, and I thank you very much for this conversation. It's been, it's been wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you. David Suzuki started his TV career in 1971 with a show called Suzuki on Science. It was the beginning of his life's work explaining science. Two decades ago, he promoted his autobiography by posing naked with a fig leaf on the cover of a TV magazine. And in a very early attempt at fighting disinformation by debating Philip Rushton over his views on race. You can see the video of David Suzuki over the years on the cbc.ca player, and you can watch the Apocalypse Plan B on CBC Gem. That's it for Hot Politics this week. Just a reminder to rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment. We love hearing from you. Hot Politics is produced by Canada's National Observer. Our managing producer for podcasts is Sandra Bartlett, associate producer Zara Kozama. Our publisher is Linda Solomon Wood. I'm David Mackay. Next week, it's Maxed Out with Max Fawcett. See you in two weeks.